Encore with a whole new intro. Game Theory Gone Wild, Copay Cards, Copay Accumulators, and Copay Maximizers. Today I speak with Dia Balazi. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Well, this episode is suddenly incredibly relevant again, just with all the stuff going on with copay maximizers. If you're going to understand maximizers, though, you really have to start here. In a nutshell, this whole thing is a battle royale between copay cards and patient assistance programs offered by pharma companies versus copay accumulators and copay maximizers deployed by health plans and PBMs. I just want to start by getting everyone grounded on a few really key points. Here's point one. Drug abandonment is a thing. Patient goes into the pharmacy to pick up their RX and the out-of-pocket is too expensive, so they leave without their drug. This can happen on the first fill, like, oh, wow, I guess I don't really need that new drug my doctor just told me I should pick up. Or it can happen downstream, like in January, when all of a sudden a deductible kicks in. But in all cases, we have a patient getting sticker shock on the out-of-pocket for a med and then going without the drug or pill splitting or rationing or doing other things to save money. So that's point one important background point to keep in mind throughout this whole conversation. Here's point two to get grounded on. How PBMs shake rebates out of pharma manufacturers is to use what I just said, that whole abandonment possibility, as a leverage point. Pharma goes into a PBM that controls access for drugs for, I don't know, 100 million lives. The PBM says, hey, you pharma, if you want to be on our formulary, you got to kick out this much in rebates. Pharma says, no, that is too much rebate. I cannot pay it. PBM says, well, then, okay, you're not on formulary or you are poorly positioned on formulary. And let me translate what that means. Now, the out of pocket for your drug will be so expensive that patients are going to actually walk out of the pharmacy without your drug because I, the PBM, have control over the patient out of pocket and I will make it very expensive. From a pharma's standpoint, all those patients that aren't picking up the drug, that means a loss of market share. And that market share can translate into a lot of lost revenue for the pharma company. And thus begins the whole war of the copays slash out of pockets. So now let's fast forward through the past, say, 10 plus years. It'll be like one of those movie montages with the action sped up so fast you don't need words to see what's going on. Except this is an audio podcast, so I guess you do need words. All right, so this is what happens next. Pharma starts raising its prices combined with there's more super expensive specialty pharmacy drugs. Reaction by the PBMs to this was to try to get more aggressive with pharma demanding increasingly high rebates and other concessions. Keeping in mind the prize and leverage point that the PBMs offered pharma to secure those rebates, those PBM rebates, was lower copays or out-of-pockets for patients. Again, it's a well-known fact that the higher the patient out-of-pocket, the lower the market share of the drug because the higher the patient costs, the more patients abandon at the pharmacy counter. It's the old supply and demand curve at work. 
At a certain point here in all of this, the pharma companies start to get really pissed about their dwindling net prices as rebates start going up and up. And their market share kind of doesn't because the PBMs are keeping the money (laughs) and maybe not passing it along to plan sponsors or patients. It's a zero-sum game fight over the money, and pharma feels like the PBMs are getting more than their share. And they're pretty smart, these pharma manufacturers. So pharma comes up with a Houdini move to escape PBMs holding pharma hostage for rebates by using their control over how much patients pay or don't pay at the pharmacy counter. Fasten your seatbelts and let the games begin. Pharma decided to hand out copay discount cards. Then pharma doesn't have to pay PBM rebates to get lower patient out-of-pocket costs. They can finesse lower patient out-of-pocket costs all by themselves. Take that. PBMs. Except now, the PBMs see this and they raise. Enter copay accumulators and also copay maximizers. For this part of the extravaganza of game theory at its finest, I'm going to let Zia Balazi, PharmD, MPH, my guest today, explain further. However, one more thing to point out before we begin. In the olden days, this whole war of who has leverage over who transpired in the context of small molecule drugs in competitive markets a lot of times. So like Lipitor versus Crestor and the brands all cost like a hundred bucks a month and maybe there was a generic equivalent. If the health plan made it too expensive for a patient to get one of those drugs, they usually made another one in the same class attractive financially. So the patient had, theoretically at least, options and the stakes were also a lot lower. The dollar volumes that we're talking about here were a lot lower. Now, this same war is being fought on the specialty side of the house, where drugs cost thousands or tens of thousands a month and the patient may have but one option. So if it's made to be financially toxic for a patient to get that one drug, The patient has to choose between their family's health and dipping into their 401k in order to afford their out-of-pocket costs or going bankrupt or dying. And when I say or dying, that's not hyperbole. There are studies that clearly show the mortality rates for patients who have trouble affording their meds are worse. In these cases, pharma can be, sort of authentically, a hero who steps in and helps patients who are functionally uninsured because they can't afford the copays and deductibles that their plan sponsors have put in place to actually use the insurance that they are paying handsome premiums to have. Pharma can step in and help via these copay discount cards or co-insurance programs or through patient assistance programs helping those with lower incomes. So there's no question in the short term that when a patient desperately needs a drug and their insurance is insufficient, a pharma manufacturer can be a knight in shining armor financially. But only if this were so simple, like this is some kind of spaghetti Western with the good guys and the bad guys. Now let's think about this copay slash out-of-pocket assistance offered by pharma with a longer time frame or a more systemic time frame in mind. How is it that pharma can have prices that are as high as we all know they are, right? It's because enough patients don't abandon the med at the pharmacy counter or these days in the infusion clinic. So the lower pharma can drive the patient out of pocket for a really expensive drug, the more they have a certain amount of impunity to raise the drug prices. This is a lot of the argument against price caps on out-of-pockets just in general, by the way. They matter for patients. They save lives. 
But they also have the consequence of kind of getting rid of what is often seen as a big control point, checking pharma prices from zinging even higher than they already are. Bottom line, we have a catch-22 on our hands and the patient is stuck in the middle. If you're a patient and you need your miracle drug, and a lot of patients call these drugs their miracle drugs, pharma is your hero, at least right now. However, pharma is also now able to raise their prices even more next year. And now you really need their out-of-pocket support because the price of the drug is so high, your employer slash taxpayers can't afford the rising drug spend and even more costs gets shifted onto patients. It becomes like Stockholm syndrome. But again, no white hats and black hats here. This whole thing is one of those incomprehensible art house films with like lots of plot twists. And in every other scene, you start to feel for the character you just hated 10 minutes ago. Because while pharma is getting busy raising prices, you have PBMs and nothing for nothing plan sponsors also up to their own machinations. Like, hey, here's one that's quite a marvel. PBM double dipping. Like if the PBM can get pharma to pay the patient deductible and then also get the patient to pay the patient deductible. Huh. (laughs) By the way, that was a backdoor introduction to accumulators. And then later on, maximizers showed up on the scene. I just want to say that with maximizers, not all are created equal. I can certainly see their value for patients when they are deployed by companies and plan sponsors as part of their benefit designs with an explicit goal of helping members and the plan itself, nothing for nothing, afford expensive drugs. It's clear that the patients need. But hmm, I have to say, and I'm not well-versed enough yet in how this maximizer business has evolved to comment on whether some of what is going on is still a net positive for some members and patients. Some of these PBMs have opened up entirely separate maximizer companies, which for sure they are upcharging employer plan sponsors to use. And the whole point of these separate entities is to get as much cash out of pharma as possible while they, I don't know, may or may not pass that cash on as savings to patients and members. I need to do a show on this coming up. There's a new bill in the House, by the way. It's called the Help Copays Act, which I don't think is just aimed at accumulators. If you didn't understand what I just said, you will after you listen to this episode. And with that, here is Dia Balazi. Dia is president and CEO over at Acela Health. He is a pharmacist by training who has worked for pharma and then he worked at a health plan, spending a lot of time in the PBM space. In other words, he's seen this tangled web from pretty much every angle. We kick right into the conversation talking about accumulators. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Dia Balazi, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you for having me. So the leadership of PBMs, they all gather together in a room and they brainstorm a solution to undermine the copay cards, which undermine <laughs> their formulary tiers. What do they come up with? So so obviously the concept of copay accumulators is one of those things to try to dissuade pharmacies from using copay assistance or copay cards for patients. It's probably the concept of copay accumulators wasn't just a probably a PBM thought, but it also came from their customers, whether it was health plans or employer groups. And and the premise, if you think about, if I can take a second to describe sort of pre-accumulators, you know, if somebody had a $100 copay and the copay assistance or the copay card program was willing to buy down that $100 copay down to 10, in other words, they would pay $90, the patient would be responsible for 10. The payer or the PBM typically wouldn't even know that happened. There's there, the data around getting this insider information is very limited. The payer doesn't really see that. Patient walks in with a crisp $10 bill of their own and a $90 copay card. 
that goes in payment for the $100 copay. But at the end of the day, all the PBM knows is that $100 got paid. That's exactly right. Okay, then what happens? In the copay accumulator model, if we go back to this $100 example, that $90 of that copay assistance program from the manufacturer buy down does not go against their deductible. So in other words, if that patient had a $4,000 deductible, only $10 would come off. So the patient would still owe $3,990 versus $3,900. So they're not getting credit or the benefit of that copay as they probably would have before these concepts of the accumulators had come out. And I guess this would matter because there's generally speaking an upper limit for how much the pharma company will pay for any given patient. So it's like, you know, we'll pay up to $90 per script for a total of $2,000 or $1,000, right? So like you can max out the amount that a pharma company is going to put against any given patient in any given year. That is generally correct. The majority of them do have some type of budgetary allotment for the patient to to utilize. Uh-huh. I'm seeing where this road is leading in the sense that if the amount is not getting counted toward the deductible, so a more stark example might be like a multiple sclerosis product. The copay isn't $100. It might be, you know, just for sake of this example, like say $1,000, right? Because it's some kind of coinsurance tier. Yes, yes. If the max pharma benefit is say $3,000, and the pharma company is contributing, I don't know, like $900 toward mm-hmm. the, the copay, then in three months, the patient's going to blow through their pharma benefit, but they still haven't satisfied their deductible. That's exactly right. All the patient has done in this case, when there's an accumulator's pushed out in a time perspective, their time to pay that. Instead of paying that perhaps earlier in the year, they're now, to your, to your example, maybe start paying their deductible out in April, May timeframe. Yeah, so if I'm a patient and now, I'm, now it's the middle of March, I no longer have a pharma benefit. You know what I mean? Like I can't yep. use the copay card anymore because I've Correct. maxed it out and my out-of-pocket that I owe is still $1,000. Yep. So now all of a sudden That's you've right. got a patient who's, who goes to the pharmacy and they're told, oh, you've got to pay a grand for your drug. And they're like, well, wait, 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 it's only supposed to cost 100 because I have this copay card, right? Those are the real, real scenarios or situations that do come up. The patient will then have to pay their, their out-of-pocket or their deductible if they're in a deductible type of benefit design. Uh, until they get past that. And once they get past that, if there's typically a copay or some lesser dollar amount, that typically will kick in. But you're absolutely right. At that point, they don't get credit for the dollars that were the dollars that were utilized by the copay assistance program. What's the typical deductible that some of these patients, like examples of a patient acquiring a specialty drug? If I take your multiple sclerosis example, MS products typically today are easily 60, 70, sometimes $80,000 a year in terms of the product cost. The patient might have some form of coinsurance because it's a specialty product, to your point. I have seen coinsurances range from 10 to 20% pretty typically. They may be in a five, $6,000 deductible phase, but the copay assistance programs are typically a bit more rich. They might allow a couple of grand per month or maybe up to 20,000 or $24,000 a year. So you can kind of see how this could potentially play out, right? They, the patient could be getting the value of the copay of the manufacturer-sponsored uh, copay assistance. It might work out okay for the first three months that they meet their deductible phase. Now, if there's an accumulator, it won't. 
they've got to still pay that $6,000 uh, deductible at some point in time. But again, if it's a, you know, this is all about timing. I mean, it's literally a math problem based on do I spend it now? Do I spend it later? And that all depends on how that copay assistance program is going to is going to try to come up with the with the dollars to, to do that. But to your point, it's typically you don't really run out of the, the copay assistance benefit in the first three months. It typically will get the patient through maybe middle of the year, maybe into the third quarter. And then, to, you know, if a payer has that accumulator in place, then that six thousand dollar bill. To, starts to come right in. For a multiple sclerosis product that typically costs $7,000 a month, that's pretty much a whole month's prescription is being pushed over to the patient to pay for in that particular time, which could be a, a, a significant financial challenge for almost anyone. Yeah. In fact, I was listening to patient who had a kid with cystic fibrosis and her point was suddenly their prescription expenses went up $8,000 a year and mm-hmm. she had to dig into her 401k to get yeah. eight grand to pay for her child's obviously you can't go without your cystic fibrosis medication you know So she had to dig into her, their retirement fund to fund the eight grand, which they never had to pay for before. And, you know, her point was like, I just basically got my salary decreased by $8,000, you know, like effectively, like that's how she was taking it, that her employer just, you know, might as well have given her a demotion of eight grand. Sure. Meanwhile, from the employer's point of view... If I'm thinking about this as an employer, I mean, obviously, employers and PBMs are doing this for a reason. So we kind of touched on, we implied a reason before. In my opinion, this is a very philosophical slash potentially contractual obligation that employers or payers see that the patients have to to meet. The philosophical part of this is, is this something that the patient specific, it has to come out of the patient's credit card or bank account? Or is at the end of the day, is this about pushing cost off? So if you think about before the concepts of accumulators, the ideas of deductibles and copays, this was just a way of pushing the dollars either to the patient or to somebody else to pay for. Now we're getting into conversations of, no, no, I want the patient to pay, not somebody else, right? And we're seeing some very interesting variations of copay assistance programs that are happening and to try to hit on this philosophical point. Is this just like a skin in the game argument? Like, oh, the patient needs skin in the game. So I think that's part of it. I think that's part of it. I think it's it's some folks who are, you know, it's almost like the nuclear arms race, right? You've got two sides of the fence here and folks are just trying to combat each other, you know, in terms of how this actually gets to play out. And unfortunately, the patient's kind of stuck in the middle in, some, in, in many instances. But But again, you read the language of these benefit design and some of the the plan documents that these payers and employers produce, it doesn't really say to the T that it has to come out of the patient's bank account. It's just, you know, this is patient's liability, which means, you know, the providers, i.e. pharmacy, should pay for that or should uh, ask for the farm, ask for the patient to pay for that. If somebody else, your your grandparents decide to write you a check or your mom or a wealthy person standing behind you at the counter that sees you're having a problem, does that really matter? You know, the, and these are, again, kind of a philosophical kind of conversation. But again, the payers that have jumped onto the accumulator model feel strongly that it should come from the patient and not anyone else. A lot of times the skin in the game philosophers... <laughs> Yeah. They want patients to feel the financial burden 
of decisions that are being made relative to, you know, health spending so that Mm -hmm. they can be consumers. It's hard to be a consumer if somebody else is paying for everything because everything's free. You act like everything is free. Is the thinking there that these patients are going to sit there and do a pro and con decision-making matrix relative to whether or not the kid really needs this med? I think the answer, it started that way. I think if you think about the financial mathematical model of this, and again, if we just use simple math, what we're seeing now happen is that you've now taken, and again, let's say a patient has a $6,000 or $8,000 deductible, whatever that dollar amount, you've basically got pharma to pay for that. When you first, at the the beginning, your initial, the way you've created the premium for that family or for that patient is basically saying, you know, $6,000, they've got to pay pay for it first. Right. But what now what's happened is you got pharma to pay that. And then what you're doing as a payer is you're now coming in saying, I still want the six thousand from the patient. So in essence, you've now pushed twelve thousand dollars, for example, of cost when you really modeled this to pay to push down to six thousand dollars of cost. So now it's become a you know, I think it's somewhat of evolved to being a to your point, let's get the patients feeling this, being a consumer, making consumer based decisions to how do I push further push costs on a pharmaceutical budget that's so out of control, especially in the specialty arena? You know, as soon as a product gets designated as specialty, you know it's going to be six figures, now seven figures in terms of cost, right? So, so there's that aspect that I think it's now fortunately started to, this is another mechanism for payers to push down additional costs to both the patient and now the pharma company. So it started out as a rebuttal to pharma's rebuttal. <laughs> So the PBMs obviously have a vested interest to get rebates and to put things in tiers so they can drive volume, et cetera, to to products, which they're financially incented to drive volume toward. You know, then the copay cards come out, which diminishes their leverage effectively. So, you know, the copay accumulators were reactionary to that. But then the prices of the pharmaceutical drugs started to go up and up and up. You start to have employers who just are freaking out because budgets are, it can kill a budget if somebody gets hemophilia. So employers are start asking, you know, I can't pay for this anymore. Then the strategy kind of takes on another core imperative, if you will, which is legitimately to reduce employer costs. Correct. That's exactly right. And the patient's stuck in the middle. Yeah. Do you feel like ultimately, so just taking a step back, there is every incentive. And if you want to hear more about this, listen to, there's a show with Vinay Patel talking about the incentives, just kind of inherent systemic incentives for pharma to actually raise prices. It's kind of weird. Do these accumulators provide a counterforce to that? Like this is actually a legit impetus for pharma to not raise prices or to actually be competitive. So, so I think being competitive and not raising prices are probably two different variables, so two different things. I think as it relates to not raising prices, I think the answer is no. In terms of competitiveness, I don't think accumulators are really forcing pharma to be more competitive. I think where we really see the biggest strides in competition is a couple of reasons. One, there's multiple pharma programs or products in that particular disease state that have now disease alternatives or or therapeutic alternatives. We're starting to see more of that competition. So in other words, if I have three 
uh, biologic products to treat or three specialty products to treat rheumatoid arthritis, it's a lot better. I can finagle a better rebate or price than when there's only one and that's the only game in town, right? And I think there's that's a, that's a pretty significant driver and less about the accumulators. I think what the accumulators have done really, as I mentioned before, is they've kind of, payers have figured out to use them to push some of these additional costs to kind of create some breathing room, knowing that the next million dollar hemophilia product is around the corner and they've they can move dollars around when it, when it comes to trying to break even or trying to trying to meet their meet their budgets. So if I'm an employer, is that the best I can do? Which is basically save money by making my employees pay for it? So that's one. I think that's one aspect. I think if you look at well, what are all the tools? You know, the concept of formulary, which then hits to rebates. That's another tool. Do we want to put more clinical requirements to make sure if we're going to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to treat a specialized condition, do we want to make sure that's the right patient? So these clinical programs, these, these pre-authorization models that are out there to really make sure, you know, if we're going to spend it, we want to make sure we're not, we're not creating a scenario where we're throwing money down the you-know-what. There are other things. Moving sites of care, you know, home-based health care is, is now bigger than it ever was. You know, being able to, do I need to send and pay a hospital to infuse a specialty medication where that might be doable to send a nurse to someone's house at half the price, right? So there are other techniques, other applications or tools that can further alleviate, you know, the, this pricing. But I think it's it's not a one, it's not a simple answer. It's combinations of these things to really effectively create a program that's tailored for the specific types of patients in that employer population. Let's add a wrinkle here. Copay maximizers. How are they different than accumulators? I think I, I get the feeling that maximizers are kind of like the son of an accumulator. Yeah, maybe more like a, a half brother, perhaps. <laughs> but um, let me maybe define it and then we can get into the weeds of it. You know, if you think of the accumulator being not providing credit for the patient, the maximizer is doing something almost in essence. Just, just completely different, which is if I know there's a copay assistance for a particular product, maybe I even know how much money a program even has. Why don't I tailor a benefit design that's going to push or utilize and press upon the specialty pharmacies to enroll those patients so that pharma pays through those copay assistance programs more of that cost? That's this. Is you're basically maximizing those copay assistance programs. And you could penalize the patient, much like an accumulator, whether you, you don't give them credit for that or you, you do. I didn't quite get that. So what exactly yeah. is a maximizer? So the accumulator, what that does is it removes the pharma's ability to contribute to a deductible. How does the maximizer differ from that? If I can give you an example, if we use that same multiple sclerosis example, I'm just going to use some round math here. Let's say it's a $100,000 a year product. And we know that copay assistance program has $24,000 of value that can be utilized to buy down the patient's uh, co-payment, right? So what the idea would be is, well, why don't I create a benefit design? In other words, a copay that's $2,000 a month, for example, right? So that it equates to $24,000. Perhaps the year before, that patient might have had a $100 copay with a $6,000 deductible. I'm kind of putting that away and I'm saying, I am now going to charge you consistently as a copay of $2,000 a month, knowing that pharma is going to come in to pay that $2,000. Uh -huh. So basically, I'm making my out-of-pocket match the pharma program deliberately. Correct. Correct. We're trying to, yes, we're trying to. Yes, that's, that's the idea of the maximizer. Again, we were talking about game theory earlier. This is kind of like, I'll see your... <laughs> <laughs> 
So, you know, employers and, and, and PBMs who are leveraging the maximizer strategy, they're doing market research. They're going around figuring out what all the max benefits are. You know, somebody made some giant spreadsheet, wrote down what all the pharma companies are paying, and then decided that they want legit the patient to pay $100 a month or something like that. So now they're making the monthly out-of-pocket, like, $2,100 so that they're controlling and making sure that the patient isn't hit with like the pre- previous example, like all of a sudden $8,000 out of unexpected out-of-pocket costs. You know, they're making sure that it's fair, but at the same time, they're recognizing the form of contribution. That's right. And there's variations of this, but that is exactly a general mindset or, or definition of what a maximizer is. What's the downside there? What is this? So, so uh, whose perception or whose, per, you know... Who doesn't and, and like who it? Shoes, there's always I, somebody doesn't that doesn't like it. Like it. Right? <laughs> yeah. I think the pharma doesn't like it. I think pharma, you know, has a distaste for both the accumulators and the maximizer, right? They were never intended to be utilized this way. They were intended to be down the... Financial liability, whether it's a deductible, co-insurance, co-pay, right? And, and you've now got payers utilizing this. And there's lots of variations of this. I have seen very bizarre ones to very... Give examples of a bizarre one. I just, I can't wait. <laughs> I have seen where using that cystic fibrosis because it's such an expensive product. These are three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars $400,000 a year in some cases where the payer might put out a $25,000 co-pay or co-insurance, right? That and they basically, the, the pharma company will pay it and they've just maximized that entire copay assistance that would have been for the patient in one month, in one script, right? So there's that kind of what I think is a very disastrous and, and perhaps um, inappropriate way of, of applying a copay maximization model, right? They're just sucking it dry all in one, all in one shot or, or, or in two months or what have you. And then the patient still winds up losing because now in February, they, ran, they have no subsidy. Right. They don't have a subsidy. And even if their copay goes to something reasonable, you know, like even a grand, it's still it's still a challenge. So there's yep, there's absolutely that. But but again, I mean, I think there's there's a very there's variations of approaches here that that we I have seen folks attempt at. And, and I would say maximizers are a bit new, except for a couple of payers out there that have been probably doing this for five, six years. Many folks have maybe jumped onto this in the last year versus accumulators. You're even seeing some legislation in certain states that say you can't do accumulators. You know, they're trying to push back on a, on a policy perspective. But but again, the maximizer model is a bit newer and, and still trying to figure its way in, in sort of mainstream pharmacy benefit services. You know, another program that always seems to come up in these conversations, which isn't really related but it's adjacent enough that it always seems to come up. The patient assistance programs, right. wherein a pharma company donates, you know, charitably donates a chunk of change to yep. a patient group, a patient advocacy group. And that patient advocacy group then helps patients pay their out-of-pockets. That's a, a bit of a different model in the sense that there's a typically a significant qualification that the patients have to meet, such as they don't meet poverty level limits to qualify for Medicaid, for example, but they're obviously not able to pay for their medications. They're kind of in that in that little void or gap there that's, that's pretty wide in terms of number of people in the U.S. And then to your point, they would get qualified in these patient assistance programs that are typically foundations, charitable organizations that are providing those dollars. Many of those dollars come from pharmaceutical companies, sponsorship, et cetera, to, to help pay for, for those products, right? To help assist those patients. I think one of the things that probably warrants mention with this whole, in this whole conversation is that we're talking about, let's just say it's, it's patient 
and co-insurance and the patient's responsible for 20% of the cost of the med. That means the employer is responsible for 80%. It is financially, let's just say, advantageous for somebody, meaning the pharma company somebody, to pay the patient's portion so that the patient can get the med because there's still 80% of the cost of the med on the table. Right. And That's right. that 80% is being borne by these employers. So like in the cases that we're talking about here where there's no therapeutically equivalent alternative, you have this poor employer. I feel for employers who are, I feel, being put to a certain extent in a, in a situation that is almost as untenable in certain cases as the one that the patient's getting put in. Yes, you're 100% right. This is their biggest challenge. How do I keep healthcare affordable for themselves, offer reasonable premiums to their employees, and sustain a business? It's, it's definitely a challenge. They are they are struggling. I have seen multiple times, or especially these gene therapies that come out, and, and thank God these employers have reinsurance and stop loss, but even that causes them to their costs to go up in that perspective to pay for these expensive outlier cases that are millions of dollars where they don't even spend that much in their entire prescription benefit. You know, and they've got a two million dollar bill that just came about. So it's it's a it's it's extremely challenging. These are the issues that employers are trying to figure out. There's no clear answer to this. I was just actually reading a randomly a Milliman report, which suggested that stop loss very frequently doesn't even cover the gene therapies like they're excluded. Anyway, yep. so, you know, it's also a question mark, even if you have stop loss that you're paying handsomely for, whether or not it's going to cover some of this this stuff. That's right. So, Dia, do you want to talk a little bit about Acela Health? Acela Health is a specialty pharmacy cost containment benefit management company. So if someone is interested in learning more about Acela Health, where can they go for info? AcelaHealth.com. Dia Balazi, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thank you. So let's talk about going over to our website and typing your email address in the box to get the weekly email about the show that has come out. Sometimes people don't do that because they have subscribed on iTunes or Spotify and or were friends on LinkedIn. What you get in that email is a full and unredacted, unedited version of the whole introduction of the show transcribed. There's also show notes with timestamps. Thanks so much for listening.